Our guest on this edition of the Geopolitics and Empire podcast is Professor Jeremy Kuzmarov. He is a lecturer at Tulsa Community College and the author of the recently published The Russians Are Coming Again, The First Cold War as Tragedy, The Second as Farce. We'll be talking about the book and his take on the new Cold War and U.S. foreign policy. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Kuzmarov. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure and honor. Now, let's start first with the historical context, which part of your book is dedicated to, which you call the true origins of the Cold War. You describe U.S. foreign interventions into Tsarist and Soviet Russia, which have been kind of swept under the rug. And could you tell us what is wrong with the current American history uh, as we know it, and how that not only distorts our current view on the new Cold War, but actually escalates the danger of the new Cold War turning hot, as, as you say? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think the, you know, the problem with conventional understanding is that in, in American society and culture, uh, we're kind of reared to believe that the Russians are a menacing uh, force. And you know, the history of the Cold War is often presented as um, a case where the United States was kind of victimized by Stalinist aggression and was more kind of innocent party uh, that was reactive uh, to the Soviet Union uh, and the uh, alleged monstrosity that was the Soviet Union. But if we look at, you know, if we probe more deeply and realistically into the history, we find that uh, the United States really triggered the Cold War through its intervention in the Russian Revolution in 1917, when it was support and the Russian Civil War when the, United, the Woodrow Wilson administration, in alliance with various other Western nations, including Canada and also Japan, uh, intervened to support white counter-revolutionary elements uh, who were trying to destroy the Bolshevik Revolution. And you know, from the beginning, the United States uh, and many European countries couldn't tolerate an alternative system to capitalism. And I think the roots of the Cold War and uh, you know, go, go, go back to that. And this was a very ugly intervention. The United States was supporting, uh, you know, and its allies were supporting very regressive elements in Russian society who committed a lot of atrocities. U.S. troops were committing a lot of atrocities. Uh, ultimately, many of the soldiers questioned what it was all about. Even the major commanding general, uh, William S. Graves, dissented uh, against Woodrow Wilson because he thought his, his mission was just to enforce American neutrality. When he realized he was enmeshed in another country's civil war, he thought it was uh, unethical and illegal. Uh, so, you know, we kind of bury that history, but, the, you know, the Russians remember their history. And, you know, the, a lot of the Soviet leadership were involved in that operation, you know, uh, were, were essentially involved in the Russian Revolution and in fighting the counter-revolutionaries and the United States and the West. So it shaped their mindset, and they developed a a uh, rational suspicion uh, towards the United States uh, and Western countries. And then again, after World War II, my book kind of looks into the uh, true history of the Cold War. Uh, and it's not true that it was just about Stalinist aggression. Uh, uh, in fact, the Soviet Union was decimated by World War II and was largely focused on rebuilding uh, its economy uh, and you know, was, was wanting a strategic buffer Uh, to guard against renewed uh, German attack in the future, uh, uh, but that was presented as you know aggression by Stalin uh, that the United States had to stand up to. 
But, you know, left out also that narrative is that the United States was supporting counter-revolutionary elements to roll back uh, any uh, communist regimes in Eastern Europe. So uh, the United States, I think, comes across a very aggressive country uh, in trying to roll back uh, a communist influence uh, and was neglecting certain Russian uh, interests at that time. Uh, uh, so that's the kind of history of the Cold War that I discuss in my book. And yeah, it, it gives some context for what we see today because, uh, you know, the history shows that the United States has often been very aggressive uh, and provoking the Russians. And we see continuity in the present day with the expansion of NATO uh, close to Russian territory and other provocations like the U.S. intervention in Ukraine. Uh, so history is just repeating itself. But again, you know, we're, we're told that the Russians are the threat and this evil uh, menace to us, uh, and we don't look critically at our own actions. And so I, uh, we'll get to NATO later, which is very interesting, but I guess the danger lies in the Americans thinking that we're on the defensive and the Soviets and, well, Russia today are, are the aggressors when it's really the other way around. And something new I learned about uh, in your book, you know, I've, I've read and studied Henry Wallace in different contexts, but he's an intriguing figure who you discuss um, and you, you mention him calling for a century of the common man, which rings in stark opposition to Henry Luce's call for an American century, um, which you might, you know, seeing what America has done in the 20th century around the world, you can call it an American century of subjugation in a way. Um, and you also cite the famous scientist Linus Pauling, who I'm a fan of because of his work in dietary supplements and vitamin C and so on. And uh, Pauling uh, said of Wallace, if Wallace had won, that many wars could have been uh, avoided. Um, so could you tell us a little why you felt Wallace to be so important? Sure. Uh, you know, I think Henry Wallace is one of the great figures uh, in American political history. Unfortunately, yeah, he's kind of been forgotten. You know, he wasn't appreciated in his own time. He was an early victim of McCarthyism. But Wallace was a very learned man. Uh, very intelligent and somebody who respected other peoples and cultures. You know, he was very widely traveled. Uh, he would go to other countries to learn about the country. He would talk to the people. Uh, in fact, I was reading a book about Latin America and it discussed how uh, on a trip to Ecuador, the British ambassador got really upset with him because you know he skipped some kind of fancy uh, diplomatic dinner because he was speaking with a, a, an Indian family uh, for many hours to better understand the problems of Ecuador you know, and see what he could do uh, in his uh, powerful position to help them. So I think you know, Wallace was a person of very high uh, character, which is unfortunately quite rare in American politics. Yeah, a man of curiosity and intellect. And with, you know, he was Roosevelt's vice president from uh, 1940 to 1944. And with regards to Russia, yeah, he was basically saying, um, you know, that Russia, there's, you know, he wanted to continue the Roosevelt policy of cooperation uh, between the United States and Russia, which had been occurring uh, during World War II in the fight against the Nazis. Uh, uh, but there were powerful interests bent on undermining him. Yeah, and yeah, he presented a broader vision that. Uh, you know, now World War II is kind of portending the end, you know, shows the excesses of colonialism uh, and the racist ideology of Hitler, and that's something we have to turn against. So he was calling for a new century of the common man, where the, you know, powerful countries of the world would try and help 
uh, help the developing nations, and there would be no more colonialism. But Henry Luce was, uh, you know, had an alternative vision of the American century that it was the mission of the United States to, you know, spread American uh, values and uh, spread American influence all around the world, uh, even if you know uh, countries didn't necessarily want that influence uh, if they wanted more autonomy. Uh, but you know, Luce wanted to promote American uh, uh, influence all around the world, uh, so that was very counter to Wallace's uh, vision of a more cooperative uh, world order, cooperation between the major powers. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, he was undermined at the 1944 Democratic Party convention. There was a conspiracy that took root, and because Wallace was supposed to be renominated as the vice president, and it was known that Roosevelt was was ailing. He probably wouldn't live out his presidential term, so whoever would be the vice president would probably be the next president of the United States. And Wallace, I think what happened was that at the convention he was about to be nominated, and then there was a mysterious blackout, a renominated, then a mysterious blackout occurred, and some people believe that blackout was deliberately set up, and then so they had to reconvene the next day. And over the night, uh, all these party power brokers basically met in some back rooms and made some deals to ensure that Wallace would be excluded and Harry Truman would be nominated uh, as Roosevelt's vice president. And that was a major turning point in the history of the Cold War and arguably world history because instead of pursuing uh, a policy of cooperation with Russia and a, a policy of trying to uh, help at developing world countries without adopting imperialistic methods, uh, the United States uh, pursued an alternative course that uh, loses American century that led ultimately to the horrible wars in Korea and Vietnam and millions of deaths, as, as Linus Pauling suggested. So if Wallace had lived, we might have had a much different world take root after World War II. And so you've mentioned the Third World as being perhaps the biggest loser of the Cold War. You know, my view as an American is that, um, having lived in the U.S. and now living in the former Soviet Union, Kazakhstan, that under the Soviet Union, you know, tens of millions, the, the numbers are debatable, but tens of millions were killed by the Soviet government. But uh, the U.S. didn't kill its own citizens, but instead went around the world killing tens of millions of, of people, uh, of foreign citizens. And the third world suffered devastating proxy wars, regime change after regime change, death squads trained you know, by CIA and Western European intelligence assassinations, uh, biological and chemical warfare experimentation, economic destabilization. Um, and so you devote a section of your book uh, and you go through a lot of stuff, which I don't. We, we won't have too much time to get into. But you mentioned stuff like false flag operations, such as Operation Gladio. By the way, for listeners, we have uh, interviewed um, Daniela Ganser, the Swiss historian, who published the book on Operation Gladio. So people can go back and listen to that. You mentioned the secret projects of Operation Paperclip, um, bringing Nazis over to work for for the U.S. military-industrial complex. Um, and something that uh, you mentioned I never thought of was the U.S. How, when the U.S. attempted to make a South Korea out of Vietnam. So basically, if they had won Vietnam, they would have established a military base and a beachhead uh, to complement, you know, Japan and South Korea, and they would have had a military base in Vietnam and encircle China, according to Halford McKinder's Heartland Doctrine. 
So, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here, but what's what's most important for you regarding this idea of the, of the third war, third world being the biggest loser and all, all of these things that have occurred? Yeah, I think you summarized it very well, uh, that what occurred was essentially a war on the third world. Uh, the United States uh, you know, used the pretext of the Cold War and fighting communism to ratchet up its interventions and to engage in all kinds of manipulations uh, from all the methods you described, uh, including you know, waging wars by proxy, creating secret armies, uh, uh, launching coup d'etats, uh, etc. And that had a disastrous effect on many different countries uh, all around the world, uh, certainly in America's backyard in Latin America. Uh, there was, you know, military dictatorships took root uh, because of those policies. Uh, the United States, uh, uh, through the off, uh, USAID's Office of Public Safety, was training police forces uh, who were anti-communist, and often they were hunting down uh, any dissenters against military regimes. And under the Operation Condor was basically a transnational terrorist operation headquartered in Pinochet's Chile uh, that hunted down dissidents uh, and killed even you know a left like left-leaning opposition politicians were among those killed. Uh, so it really you know was horrible for many countries uh, and led to tremendous violence uh, and terrorism. Uh, uh, all around the world. And then you had failed states, you know, in the name of fighting communism, the United States allied with Islamic fundamentalist elements. Uh, there was actually you know, a conference at Princeton University where the strategy was developed, uh, and it led to arming of uh, ultimately the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, uh, who morphed into Al-Qaeda, uh, and support for Islamic factions, uh, and, you know, different parts of the Middle East. Uh, so, uh, th that led to the rise of terrorism uh, uh, as another consequence. So uh, I think you know there's so many examples uh, of the horrible effects. I mean, I think uh, another horrible effect was just the ratcheting up of arms shipments and arms supplies uh, led to uh, you know the warping of development uh, in many third world countries who could barely feed their population. Uh, but ha were you know were, whose oppressive governments were stocked with the latest high-tech equipment in the name of fighting communism. So uh, really, the Cold War, I think, uh, you know, it is viewed as kind of triumphalistic uh, victory, uh, often in the United States, or, or it's looked back with some nostalgia. But if we scrutinize um, U.S. foreign policy and the world situation, uh, we see that the Cold War had a very deleterious impact on. Uh, especially on third world countries. You also talk about in the book the military industrial academic complex. Uh, you're a university professor. I too have taught uh, as a university professor. And you describe how many area studies uh, departments were funded by foundations or the State Department or other government agencies. Uh, I taught in Mexico at what is known as the MIT of Mexico. And I know Noam Chomsky uh, mentioned once in the interview that MIT was originally largely funded by the Pentagon. Uh, and I found that even in Mexico at that institution, there was heavy support or an alignment with mainstream po uh, political Washington thought, uh, uh, including the military industrial complex, you know, guest speakers at the MIT of Mexico included all mainstream 
figures. Al Gore visited us, Thomas Friedman, General Petraeus. Um, and so could you speak to personal experience as well as your research into how academia is interlinked with the military intelligence complex and it helps to perpetuate the war economy? Absolutely, yeah. I think uh, MIT was referred to as the Pentagon and the Charles. Uh, and it received, uh, you know, was highly dependent uh, on Pentagon financing. And ultimately, yeah, I mean, there's a section in my book that discusses that. Actually, it was uh, J. William Fulbright uh, gave a famous speech about this because, you know, he had been uh, a member of Congress who was critiquing the military-industrial complex, uh, wrote a book called The Arrogance of Power. But he, I think in that book, and he had given a speech uh, saying, you know, uh, people are less aware of the military-academic uh, complex. Uh, and, I mean, I think ultimately, yeah, because of the Cold War, you have a kind of you had a societal mobilization uh, on behalf of fighting the Cold War, uh, and it ultimately warped uh, academia because you know scholars uh, who were dependent on their financing uh, from the Pentagon, from the military, end up you know embracing the military's outlook, and you know their studies are geared towards. I mean, often the studies like in the Cold War era, uh, they were financed to undertake studies that would benefit you know US foreign policy or, or make counterinsurgency more effective uh, but they weren't looking critically at the American role in the world or empathetically towards revolutionary movements that might have been fighting for independence or more just social order in their country uh, so uh, it, it skewed a lot of the scholarship and you know these are the people teaching students so uh, it was more a form of indoctrination than educate you know encouraging I mean true education, should encourage students to think critically and more empathetically towards the struggles of people around the world uh, for a more equitable world order. Uh, but instead, they're kind of indoctrinating students in the, in the mindset of the architects of American empire. And I think a lot of education falls uh, from that up through the present day. Uh, and of course, yeah, one thing that is discussed in the book is the, the, the history of McCarthyism led ultimately to the purging of many radical academics, uh, and then of course there's a self, you know, self censorship. Uh, people are dependent on their funding uh, or worried about tenure. Uh, they're not going to uh, adopt more critical perspective uh, and engage with more critical ideas with their students, uh, or they're not going to research uh, or investigate certain topics or probe more deeply uh, into the you know dark side of American power, for example. So I, I think academia became corrupted uh, over many years uh, because of that. Let's skip ahead now uh, to the new Cold War, fast forward. Um, and, you know, talking about this subject, I'm, I'm pro-American, I'm not anti-American, uh, neither am I, you know, necessarily pro-Russian. I just want, I don't like bullies, you know, and I like people, everyone to be treated fairly and well and for things to be objective and, and truthful um, and it seems lately every single accusation that's leveled against Russia almost literally every single allegation from my perspective seems to be patently false you know the MH17 plane crash in Ukraine it looks like you know <laughs> US Ukrainian um, interests probably took that down and blamed it on Russia. The whole Skripal affair, the Novichok poisoning in the UK seems, sounds bogus. 
The use of chemical weapons in Syria, again, the evidence points to white helmets, which are supported by the U.S., U.K. Ukraine, which was uh, a coup d'etat by the U.S. and was not an invasion by Russia. Crimea, which was legally, uh, you know, through a referendum given back to Russia, um, and so on and so forth. And, you know, for, um, the analogy for me is like, is if I punch you directly in the face, and it's caught on camera, and I shout that you punched me in the face, and everybody believes me. I mean, could you help explain this kind of phenomenon and this current propaganda that just keeps on coming against uh, Russia? Yeah, well, I, I think that's a very good analogy uh, uh, that you present because uh, Russia is, you know, def often defending itself. Like in Ukraine, I mean, the situation there, if 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 things were reversed. You know, if Russia was intervening in Mexico so heavily, uh, the United States would be very alarmed. Uh, and, uh, you know, particularly uh, if, if Russia was supporting, you know, right-wing elements with connection with neo-Nazism, uh, and the United States had been invaded by Nazis before, uh, the American public would be up in arms uh, and probably uh, calling for outright military intervention. So... It's just a complete double standard, uh, uh, and you know, inability to uh, have any empathy for for the Russian viewpoint uh, uh, that we see. And you know, the way I present in the book is that you know, the first Cold War was a tragedy uh, with you know terrible human costs that we've been discussing, and uh, was uh, probably avoidable. But this is just a complete farce because. Um, you know, these accusations, I mean, as far as the first Cold War, at least there was some truth. I mean, Stalin was a horrible dictator, you know, and there were a lot of atrocities going on under Stalin. So at least that, you know, there was some truth, you know, to the, the reticence to engage with Stalin. You know, some, uh, although ultimately I, I side with Wallace and I think there was grounds for cooperation, but at least there's some argument can be, that can be made, you know, uh, for those who uh, were weary about dealing with Stalin. But, I mean, in the present day, you know, Putin had a lot, you know, right after 9-11, Putin was the first leader to call, uh, among the first leaders to call uh, George W. Bush. You know, he was very supportive of U.S. policy in the war on terror. He didn't come to power as being particularly anti-American or anti-West. Uh, you know, he is a Russian nationalist. Uh, so there was really no reason uh, for uh, the United States to have hostility, not to have positive relations. And when sanctions were imposed in 2012, there was really no reason at all. I mean, that was even before the situation in Ukraine had unfolded. Uh, I don't see any reason why sanctions were imposed uh, at that time. So, you know, this is just a complete uh, media creation of this monster, Vladimir Putin, that has very little to do with reality. I mean, Putin is not a perfect leader, but he has done a lot of positive things for Russia. Russia's economy has uh, done much better uh, under him than under Boris Yeltsin. Uh, so, uh, and again, he wasn't particularly hostile to the West. It's just the, the invention of an enemy, uh, probably because the war on terror is winding down and there's the need to justify huge military defense spending and because perhaps Putin is too much of a nationalist and the United States wants uh, somebody, uh, you know, again, like Yeltsin, who they can just manipulate, and Putin is not that guy. So, uh, so yeah, all these uh, 
allegations are being made, as you point out, where there's very little evidence. Uh, and, you know, the media is already uh, accused, like, for instance, the MA-17 uh, flight. I mean, that's very contested. We don't fully know what happened. Uh, but the media is, uh, you know, blames Putin and makes like he's guilty uh, of that before the evidence uh, is clear at all. So that's very disturbing. And unfortunately, there's very limited opposition in the United States, limited pushback to this kind of hysteria that's being generated, completely irrational hysteria. And that's driving very dangerous, uh, provocative policies that could lead ultimately to a nuclear war. Another facet of this new Cold War are the West's use of color revolutions, which I wrote about in my graduate master's thesis, uh, and which I haven't uh, really explored in detail in the podcast, which I hope to in the future. But could you comment uh, a little bit about this method of hybrid warfare, or it's like a system of network uh, interference uh, using NGOs that, that are funded from abroad uh, against Russia and many other countries. And some of the examples uh, particular to Russia would include the 2003, I think, Georgian Rose Revolution, where the U.S. Uh, funded NGOs and youth university students through you know, Open Society, Soros Foundation, National Endowment for Democracy, and they had a Georgian who was uh, studied, you know, Harvard, so trained in the West and, and Saakashvili, and then they put him into power. Uh, Ukraine in 2004, um, and so on. So could you just comment on, on the color revolutions? Sure. Well, I think uh, the National Endowment for Democracy is an important agency that basically took over CIA functions uh, sometime in the 1980s, uh, and that's been a method, yeah, since the end of the, you know, it's been particularly important since the end of the Cold War, the guise of promoting democracy, it's often been financing opposition politicians uh, and trying to create uh, these, you know, so-called revolutions or uh, revolts of the people, but which were really designed to, you know, create pro-Western governments that will serve uh, an American or pro-West agenda including expanding NATO, you know, inviting the IMF uh, and supporting economic policies that will be accord with American interests uh, and trying to undercut and isolate Russia. So Russia is legitimately suspicious uh, of those activities and suspicious that there have been efforts to uh, undertake manipulations within Russia itself. There have been accusations that Alexei Navalny was sponsored uh, by the NED or by the CIA, uh, uh, you know, attempt to undermine Putin. So, uh, and I think Putin expelled the NED at uh, one point. So, uh, yeah, that's just an example of how the United States uh, has been very aggressive and uh, uh, trying to promote regime change. The same kind of policies we saw during the Cold War. Uh, that led to disastrous outcomes. So I think the, the American public should also be weary, their taxpayers being used in this way, because the out outcome of a lot of those revolutions is very dubious leaders coming coming into power. Like in Ukraine, you know, the media it was presented in the media like this was a popular democratic uprising. Uh, but then it was uh, Victoria Nuland, the uh, uh, you know head of the European desk at the State Department, acknowledged the United States had put in something like five billion dollars 
through the National Endowment of Democracy. <laughs> it was helping to finance those protests, and it ultimately led to the rise of uh, Poroshenko, who was a uh, oligarch uh, and who's presided over a very corrupt government since he came in, uh, following the uh, what was essentially a color revolution, uh, coup d'état, as you pointed out, in Ukraine in 2014. And another factor, I think, the, the, one of the biggest factors is, is NATO. You know, Western media seems to treat NATO expansion as a normal thing. I call it the North American, North, North Atlantic um, terrorist organization because, you know, what they did in 1999 in Serbia, but going even back further with Operation Gladio, where they actually carried out terrorist attacks all over Europe. Um, and, you know, there's really no point for NATO to exist. And it's leading us, it's one of the issues that is pushing us to the brink because they're putting missile defense bases that, you know, give it, give the U.S. and the West nuclear first strike capability and, and primacy and I'm reading that you know Macedonia is preparing for a NATO accession Ukraine is working towards NATO the Montenegrin people I believe who voted against NATO accession you know but hey who cares NATO will probably eventually just you know push them in as well um, so I mean what are your thoughts on the dangerous situation going forward now that they're trying to incorporate all these new countries. Yeah, and I think, well, your analogy, you know, a terrorist uh, organization, I mean, look what occurred in Libya in 2011, where the NATO intervention basically paved the way for Libya evolving as a, a terrorist state, because they brought in all these Al-Qaeda elements whom Gaddafi had opposed. And, you know, Libya has evolved kind of failed state. So that shows how dangerous, I mean, uh, NATO is uh, when it gets involved in countries. Uh, could lead to absolute catastrophe. And, yeah, I think we have to look at it from a Russian point of view. Uh, from their, their eyes, it looks, you know, horrible. Like they're being encircled completely. That's a great threat to them, uh, uh, you know, especially given the history uh of American intervention and the vulnerability of a regime like Putin that's more nationalistic and any regime that would stand up for Russia becomes vulnerable uh, to uh, some kind of military coup d'etat or military intervention when they're encircled with bases uh, and, and have NATO uh, right on their border. So uh, that's you know going to create a tense standoff. The Russians, yeah, going back to your point about defending themselves, I mean they have a right every government, the role of every government is to protect their population and they have a right to defend themselves which they're going to do so it's going to lead to a very tense situation uh, because uh, you know Russia is arming themselves more and more and then they, you know, the NATO uh, countries or the United States then presents Putin as a threat uh, when he's really just defending himself and, and trying to, you know, protect the sovereignty of Russia and it's created a very tense uh, world environment. You know, William Perry was uh, a uh, you know long time a cold warrior, and he came out you know, in the last couple of years and said the threat of nuclear escalation, nuclear war, is probably greater now than it was during the Cold War, because both the U.S. and Russia have thousands of nuclear weapons. So, uh, you know, a standoff uh, and growing hostilities between them uh, creates the threat of nuclear war in the future. 
And in your book, you describe uh, the McCarthyism of the 50s, uh, the Red Scare, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, was mostly the right wing um, pumping that up. But it's, isn't it interesting now how with the Russiagate today, it was concocted by the left-wing Democrats. And how do you see President Trump's position on Russia? It seems he's actually attempting, uh, has attempted to stop the new Cold War, but perhaps constantly hindered by the deep state or military industrial complex. What's your take on, on Russiagate and, and Trump and the new Cold War? Well, yeah, I think it's very ominous that the it's the liberal party and the left that is often uh, adopting McCarthyist tactics and trying to discredit anybody, uh, you know, and accusing people of treason uh, who are promoting more engagement uh, with Russia. Uh, that I think is very disturbing. I mean, uh, there were a lot of accusations. You know, some Trump officials uh, were, you know, claiming cl like uh, Carter Page, you know, gave some speeches in Moscow uh, where he was criticizing certain aspects of U.S. policy, like NATO expansion, and that was used as a basis for accusing him of being, you know, Putin uh, a lackey or something, and possible spy or you know, a treasonous agent of the United States. I mean, as far as Trump, I, yeah, I think. Uh, it was probable that Trump was adopting a kind of Bannon strategy of trying to ally with Russia, maybe to uh, undercut the growing uh, Russian-Chinese ties, uh, which uh, the United States sees as threatening. That may have been the reason Trump was pushing for a closer uh, policy with Russia. But as you point out, yeah, this uh, hysteria that's been created about Russian interference in the election and all the allegations against Russia have hindered any efforts to forge a closer uh, and better relationship between the United States and Russia. Uh, and so Trump's actual policy, I think because of the pressure he was under, this strategy was undermined. And Trump, for instance, uh, increased the U.S. involvement in Ukraine by uh, sending lethal weapons. The Obama administration sent quite a lot of weaponry and military advisors to Ukraine, but it was packaged as being non-lethal weaponry, whereas Trump uh, agreed to send lethal weaponry and, and certain, I think, anti-tank missiles were sent to the Ukrainian uh, government. Uh, so that represents an escalation. Uh, and uh, yeah, Trump has escalated uh, his ties with uh, some of the uh, these countries you mentioned who are uh, prone to join NATO. Uh, and um, he's expanded, you know, um, uh, even though he has criticized certain countries uh, because allegedly they don't pay enough into NATO and they, uh, you know, depend on the United States. But at the same time, he's increasing arms supplies uh, and military buildup on Russia's borders is increasing. So I think the, the, the relations between the U.S. and Russia have only worsened in the Trump era. But a lot of that, yeah, is because of Russiagate and the hysteria uh, and political pressure placed on Trump, which has led him to, it appears, abandon the Bannon strategy of trying to lie more with Russia to undercut China. How do you see this farcical second war, second Cold War developing or playing out? Uh, I think it's very dangerous. I think, firstly, yeah, we are seeing the renewal of McCarthyist-type climate in the United States. Uh, even though there is an anti-Trump you know, resistance movement, that movement uh, has been 
you know, attacked Trump for being uh, a traitor and is adopting like John Birch Society, uh, which was a, a radical anti-communist group in the 50s, accusations of Trump being this kind of Manchurian candidate. So people on the left who are against Trump, uh, unfortunately, are not pushing for a progressive policy vis-a-vis -vis Russia and are, are playing into this Russophobia and Russian hysteria that could augur very poorly. You know, if, a, if a Democrat comes to power in 2020, they may have to fall through on a hard line towards Russia uh, you know, and distance themselves completely uh, from Putin and the Russian government uh, because of all this. So I, I think it's, you know, uh, those tactics of trying to undermine Trump by, uh, you know, tying him to Russia is creating a political environment that will lead to ever worsening relations and it'll make it difficult for Trump or any president, for instance, to start there was a treaty that was signed in 20, um, I believe it was 2011, uh, that set limits on um, you know uh, nuclear weapons, uh, the START treaty. But that's set to expire soon, and in this kind of climate, it's going to be very hard for any leader to renew that. Uh, so once that expires, the arms race could just explode. I mean, there'll be no limits uh, on the number of nuclear weapons, and uh, if there's further provocations and escalations. We'll ultimately be investing more and more in nuclear weapons, uh, and yeah, we may see further escalations in Ukraine uh, uh, in the future. So I, I think the prospects are very ominous uh, that uh, a new Cold War will will continue to develop, and and we'll see many features of the old Cold War, including uh, growth of the arms race, more proxy wars, and as I show in the book, yeah, the one of the terrible things about Cold War is that it warped our own domestic spending priorities and domestic political culture. So that's in danger uh, of reoccurring. Any final thought before we leave you? Um, well, I would just say, yeah, that, that people uh, who are watching the podcast yeah, should be alarmed uh, about how Russia is being used as a scapegoat uh, and how the Russia issue has become politicized in the United States. Uh, and that this is, you know, can lead in very dangerous uh, direction. So I think it's important to look back at the history critically, uh, and to, you know, to heed the warnings from history, and and for an independent movement to develop uh, that pushes for a new detente with Russia, uh, and pushes for more rational discourse. All right. And how can people best follow you and, and your work? Um, well, I have a web page uh, at um, it's um, the URL. Uh, I think it's uh, I have to double check, but it's uh, we'll it's, Jer it's JeremyKuzmarov.com. I don't think there's I was just if there's a dot between my name, but I don't think so. So you can at JeremyKuzmarov.com. All right, we'll, po we'll post the link. And my email, if you have any questions, my email is jkuzmarov2 at gmail.com. So I'll be happy to hear from any readers uh, Yeah, I, I, and people watching the podcast. Yeah, and I'm currently researching a book on Obama's foreign policy. Yeah, and I think he you know, played a key role in ratcheting up and creating a new Cold War. So I'm very critical of his foreign policy. But unfortunately, Trump has gone even further from him because of all the pressure uh, uh, on this issue so 
whether left, right, or politically outside the box, I definitely recommend listeners go out and purchase the book if you want to have a deeper understanding of the new Cold War and U.S.-Russia relations and to be in a better position to anticipate uh, current and future events. Thank you, Dr. Kuzmarov, for being our guest. Thank you.